Okay, good morning, guys. Let's get started this morning. I hope all of you did your homework this week, and you're probably wondering what in the world I was smoking when I decided that those passages somehow related to what we're talking about in Revelation, but trust me, they do. And uh, we need to become Christians such as study the Word and can begin to see these correlations. And that ability to do that just comes from studying the Word. That's what it comes from. If you want to heighten your senses in the will, in the ways of God, we do that by exercising ourselves in the Word. Just like if I want to heighten my senses and my reaction time and my instincts in terms of being able to defend myself or my family, I practice martial arts outside of class. It's the same thing. We become more in tune with what God is has revealed to us by exercising ourselves in the study of the Scripture. Before we actually get in the text, I just want to highlight, I took you guys back to the Old Testament, and some people think that the Old Testament, you know, is another time, another age, maybe even another God, some people think. And some Christians will only spend their time in the New Testament. Some of them only like Matthew 5-7 through and, and the Sermon on the Mount. But the Bible tells us in the New Testament why the Old Testament was written. Not only does the Old Testament point to Christ, looking forward to Christ, New Testament looks back, um, but the Bible tells us in Romans 15 verse 4, and whatsoever things were written aforetime, talking about the, old, the Scriptures, the Old Testament, were written for our learning. Why? That we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. These things were written for our learning, that we might see the lives of these people, some of whom obeyed God, some of whom did not. And the character of God as revealed in these stories would then give us, not just stories but history by the way, would give us hope and comfort. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10-11, Paul says a similar thing to the church at Corinth. Now, of these, now all these things, he's talking about the children of Israel traveling through the desert and how they tempted Christ and Christ was the rock that gave them water and you know, referring back to the stories of the Torah. Paul says, now all these things happened unto them for in samples and they are written for our admonition. That means our rebuke. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. Well, if the, day, the Christians in Corinth in Paul's day were those upon whom the ends of the world were come, how much more is it of us today? So not only were they written for our comfort and hope, they were written for our admonition. And so those Old Testament passages, if we study them, we'll see it very does closely correlate to what Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia and what He later tells the church at Laodicea. And it's a message of hope and comfort, but also one of admonition and rebuke. So keep that in mind this morning. I hope we get to that, but there's a big, huge lesson in brotherly love that comes before we even get to Jesus Christ and the description of Him provided here. But after some matters of introduction last week, we're going to get into the text. So let's go to Revelation 3, and we'll start at verse 7. Verse 7 is the salutation, it's the greeting. Every one of these letters has a greeting. Very simple. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. What does Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love. Write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, 
and shutteth, and no man openeth. The angel of the church at Philadelphia. I, I, I talked about this when we first started our discussion on the seven churches, that this angel referred to here could be uh, the spiritual being that exists behind the scenes of the church, been given guardianship and care over the church. The Bible does say that little children whom men would want to offend and harm, the Bible warns, Jesus warns that even their angels do behold the face of the Father in heaven every day. So woe to you that would harm a little child, it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. Or this could be a reference to the pastors or the messengers of those churches. I tend to believe that the angel referred to here, an angel means messenger, not necessarily a supernatural being, although God's messengers are supernatural beings. But I think this is a message to the pastor or the, me the messenger sent to John. John was kind of over those churches, kind of a, a consultant, an, el an elder, an old man that had lots of things. He had still seen Jesus. He was the last person alive probably that had actually walked with Jesus Christ. So these people came to him for advice and sought godly counsel. And so I believe this is a message given to the church to be delivered through its pastor. You know, not necessarily what a church wants to hear, but what God is telling them. Oh, that there would be pastors today who would actually deliver to their flock what God is telling them and not just what they want to hear. Philadelphia means brotherly love. This was an actual city. We talked about that last week. This word Philadelphia or a form of it comes from a Greek word and it appears six other times in the New Testament. Here's the last time and it's actually the name of a city being referred to. But it would behoove us to consider for a moment, moment what is brotherly love? And I want to look at these other instances of that word or a form of the word Philadelphia in the New Testament. Somebody look up 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9. And then I want 1 Peter 1.22 and 2 Peter 1.7. And while you're doing that, I'm going to read the first of these instances. Romans chapter 12 verse 10 says, Be well, verse 9 is important. This is something that the church of the day needs to remember. Let love be without dissimulation. I've preached that before. In other words, concealing what you know to be true. True love doesn't keep a cap on God's truth. Let your love be without dissimulation. Abhor, in other words, hate that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. And then verse 10, be kindly affectioned one to another. Christian to Christian. Brother in Christ to brother in Christ. Remnant body to remnant body, church to church. This isn't talking about the loss. Christian to Christian. Be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. So brotherly love is tied to self-sacrifice. Preferring one another. Do we prefer the needs of one another in the church? We do. The church today does when it comes to the loss. We prefer the rights and the... Uh, the claims and the platitudes and the, and the, and the, and the uh, uh, venting of the homosexual in this country, but we don't prefer the needs of our brothers. We prefer the attitudes of wicked men in government and self-satisfying people that want to go to church and boast in their sin, but we won't prefer one another. Brotherly love prefers our brethren in Christ over our own needs. First Thessalonians 4.9, what does that say? 
as touching brotherly love, this preferring one another, love between brethren. Paul says, I don't even need to write unto you because God has already made it very clear that we're to love one another. And Jesus said, by this shall men know that you are my disciples, that you have loved one for another. Not you will love the world and approve their sin, that you'll turn a blind eye to injustice, that you'll just be a nice person with a big smile on your face and just live and let live. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying your love one for another, the Christian brother for the Christian brother, the rich man in Christ for the poor man in Christ, the white man in Christ for the black man in Christ. By this, men will know you are my disciples. When the church transcends racial boundaries, it transcends cultural boundaries, it transcends socioeconomic boundaries, and men have love one for another. It's love for the brethren. It's not talking about loving the enemies of God in a way that King Jehoshaphat did in the Old Testament. Hebrews 13, 1 is pretty simple. Let brotherly love continue. Don't let it stop. 1 Peter 1, 22, what does that have to say? Again, church member to church, not church member, there's plenty of church members in, in America that aren't brethren, but brother in Christ to brother in Christ, sister in Christ to sister in Christ. See that you love one another fervently. It speaks of unfeigned. That means untarnished, not motivated by what I can get from someone, but just out of the motive of that's my brother and sister in Christ, I'm going to love them. You know, love for the brother inevitably involves rebuke where rebuke is needed. Do we love our brethren enough in Christ if we see them stumbling in sin or we see them uh, distracted from the things of the kingdom of God? Do we love them enough to rebuke them? That's a question. That's a question. For 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Into godliness, brotherly kindness. Into brotherly kindness, charity. Okay, there Peter tells the church to add to your faith virtue. Add to your virtue knowledge. Add to your knowledge these things that were just read. Brotherly kindness, brotherly love, Philadelphia. And add to Philadelphia, charity. Agape love. Have phileo, brotherly love, Philadelphia, add to it charity, agape. Those are the references to Philadelphia in the New Testament, and then we have the name of the church there in Revelation. But oftentimes we hear this discussion in the New Testament about different types of love, and you see both of those in that last verse that Anthony read today. You see a Philadelphia type of love, and you see reference made to an agape type of love. And a lot of times the so-called scholars and the, the Bible teachers want to you know, tell us that these are two different types of love. And you know, an agape love would be like a godly love, a, a, an unconditional love like what God has for us. And that's how we are supposed to love one another and love the world. And then it, they would say, well, you know, a Philadelphia love is more of a casual, friendly, brotherly love. And, you know, you can't see this in the English Bible because the English translates both words love. And you need a Greek Bible to truly understand God's Word. And only in the Greek can we find these little nuggets that uh, unveil truth to us that we would otherwise miss. That's the typical uh, mantra 
when it comes to a discussion about love, whether it's agape love or phileo love, and especially since in one of those verses that brotherly love Philadelphia is used, the word agape comes right after it. So it behooves us to pause and ask ourselves, what is brotherly love? Is the thing that we are being exhorted to in these passages, is the thing that Philadelphia is commended for something different than the agape love that Christ, God had for the world when He sent Christ? When he sent Christ. Is it different or is it the same? Is the English Bible as preserved in the King James sufficient for us to understand God's truth or do we need to be Greek scholars to know the Word of God? We must pause and ask this question. Are there Greek nuggets that we cannot understand apart from a Greek teacher or a Greek scholar? Do we have to bow at the feet of the seminary professor or the educated pastor to know God's truth or was it given to the common man? In the English of the King James Bible, as preserved from the pure line of pure text and manuscript line of the early martyrs down through the Reformation and the Great Awakenings, is this English insufficient to communicate God's truth? Do you need to know the original languages as I do to understand God's word? The answer is no. That's a lie of the enemy. The Bible was given to the common man. When William Tyndale labored to put the Bible into English in the 1500s at the peril of his own life, he made this statement, if God will allow me to put the Bible in English, I will ensure that even the farm boy can know more Scripture than that wicked Pope sitting in Rome. And that's what the Roman Catholic Church was afraid of. If the Bible would get into the hands of the common men then the common man had enough sense to see that the, that the vomit that was coming from Rome was not Christian. And that the Pope was not Christ, but the spirit of Antichrist. And that's why the Bible in the, common hand, in, in the hands of the common man was a threat to Rome. But no, God's Word has always been given to the common man. God uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. In fact, I find it amazing that the original... Uh, writing or the original language of the New Testament was in Koine Greek. Koine Greek was the common slang of the day. It wasn't the Attic Greek of Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey and these ancient Greek works that were written in classical or Attic Greek. Attic Greek was the language of the intellectuals. It was the language of the government documents. Have you ever tried to read U.S. law in the law books? If you don't have an advanced knowledge of the English language, you're going to be lost. That's why there's so many loopholes. And yet, these ancient Greek writings were written in that type of language. God didn't give the world His Bible in the New Testament in that type of gobbledygook. He gave it in the language of the common man. But what I find amazing is that these so-called older and better manuscripts that all the modern English versions default to these older and better manuscripts, which, aren't, which, were, which are Catholic manuscripts, one was found in a trash can in the late 1800s at Mount Sinai. The other one was buried in the vaults of the Vatican. These older, quote, quote, older and better manuscripts, not only they show the hands of corruption and the hands of people that tried to change the Scriptures, but they're not written in Koine Greek. They're written in the classic Attic Greek. But yet God gave His Word in the Koine 
And so when people start talking about these newer Bibles are based on older and better manuscripts, they do not know what they are talking about. They've never even looked or studied these so-called manuscripts. One of them is called the Vaticanus. It comes from Vatican. It was found in the Vatican. But God's Word was given to the common man. And I believe that as God has preserved His Word for us in the English language, down through the, down through the uh, heritage of the martyrs and the Reformation and the Great Awakenings, we can understand it. And you have one teacher, that is Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. You are not unqualified to see the things that I am seeing and, and declaring to you today. Let the Holy Spirit be your teacher and this book is sufficient. That being said, I hear all this talk of Greek nuggets. I have studied the Bible. I've studied the New Testament. I minored in Greek when I was in college. I studied Greek and Hebrew in college and seminary. I've read many parts of the Greek Bible. I've written commentaries on entire books of the Bible utilizing the Greek. I've studied the Greek and old manuscripts as I've searched through these issues in terms of Bible versions. And as a result of this study, that doesn't make me better than anyone. It doesn't mean I know more than anyone else. I'm not claiming that. But my study, in all of my study, I have maybe found one place in the New Testament where this nugget wasn't completely pyrite or fool's gold. I found one place where the Greek really did shed some light. Now, when I go back and look now, I see that that light is already there in the context. So I'm not disavowing the usefulness of reading the Bible in the original language. I like to read the Bible in other languages. I'm reading through the New Testament in Spanish right now. I've read through passages of Scripture in the Pali. I love doing that. But God has preserved His Word and you don't need to know another language to know His truth. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking about the end days, the end times. And He's talking about how the end times will be just like the days of Noah. People were eating, drinking, partying, getting married, giving in marriage, and then the flood came and took them all away. And then He talks about it will be that way in the days of the Son of Man. Two men will be sleeping, one will be taken the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. Or two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Well, he just said that the flood came and took them all away and then one will be taken and the other left. And we look on the surface and we think, well, that means one's going to be taken to judgment. That's not teaching a rapture of the church. Well, you go back at the Greek and the word for take in the English language can mean take away or it can mean take unto. If I take your Bible, I'm taking it for myself to use it. Okay, if I take away, uh, um, if you're uh, if you got some candy or something that I don't want you to have and it's going to rot your teeth out, I'm going to take it away and throw it in the garbage can. So take has two different meanings, and it's interesting when the Bible says that the flood came and took them all away. The Greek word being used there means to to take away, but the Greek word being used when it says that men will be laying in the bed, one taken, the other left is the same Greek word that God used or the angel used when He told Joseph in Matthew chapter... I think it's Matthew chapter 1 to take Mary to be his wife. And then it says Joseph took her just as the angel had commanded to be his wife. It's two different Greek words. So the ones taken from the bed and taken from the field aren't taken to judgment like the men in the flood. They're taken or received unto Christ. There's the rapture right there in the words of Jesus Christ. If anybody wants to tell you that the rapture of the church cannot be found in the Gospels, they are lying. 
or they are profoundly ignorant. It is right there. And then you go over to Luke 17, and Jesus says, remember Lot's wife? In the same day that Lot was taken from Sodom, fire and brimstone laid down, fell down. Remember Lot's wife? Well, what happened to Lot's wife? Was she taken or was she left behind? She was left behind because she looked back. And then it goes on to say one will be taken, the other left. So I found that to be interesting, and the Greek actually shed some light on that. But even this could be discerned from the overall context of Jesus' preaching. I mean, earlier in chapter 24 of Matthew, He talks about the angels gathering God's elect. And then Lot's wife is brought into it in the, in the same passage in Luke 17. And then you compare Scripture with Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation 4 and 5. I mean, the answer's there. The English Bible's not insufficient. But that's the only place in the, in the entire New Testament that I've ever found where the Greek actually shed some light on it in a way that I was having a real hard time finding in the passage itself. So don't believe this nonsense that you have to know the original languages to know God's truth. That you have to bow down at the, in the, in the, at the feet of the priest or the Bible scholar. There is no such thing as a Bible scholar, my friends. A scholar has mastered his subject. I've said it before, the only scholar is not, is not uh, like us at all. The scholar is the author, the eternal God. But as far as a, a man... A scholar masters a subject, nobody masters the Bible. Even the great preachers used by God would tell you on their deathbed that I'm no scholar of the Bible. But let's get back to this agape and phileo, that's, or Philadelphia love, that's supposed to be different. Is the church being commissioned to something different than the love we know God had for us? The answer is no. The, meaning, the difference in meaning between these two words in Greek doesn't exist. The words are interchangeable and both refer to unconditional love. So did you know that there are actually words in languages that mean the exact same thing? And so there may be a words in another language, two different words that mean the same thing that I can translate in English using one word. And so the English is so hard to understand. Maybe what took the Greek two different words for reasons of alliteration and things like that, the English could translate into one word. I would say if there is a shade of difference between agape love and brotherly or Philadelphia love, the shade of difference might be in terms of attitude versus action. It's possible to have actions of love with improper motive. In fact, I would encourage you maybe to study this out. I won't say it dogmatically, but it seems that when agape is used, it's more referring to the attitude. And brotherly love, Philadelphia, would more be referring to the action. But are they not one and the same? True love has a proper attitude and a proper action. Don't say you love your brother and then you see him in need and do nothing. Don't say you love your brother who's living in sin and needs your help and you meet his needs, but you don't love him enough to rebuke him and point him back to Christ. They can't be separated. So the words are one and the same. When the Scriptures exhort us to brotherly love, they're exhorting us to agape love. They're exhorting us to the same love that God demonstrated to us in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm making a bold claim here about these words meaning the same thing, and some will question that, but I want to prove it to you here today. In language, in every language in the world, every word, each word of a language has a unique connotation. Every word has a unique 
connotation. Anybody know what the difference between a denotation and a connotation is? This is advanced English. A connotation is the, the thoughts, the meaning, the feelings, the emotions that are, that are captured by a word. When you hear a word, certain thoughts or emotions or feelings come to mind with every word, correct? The denotation would be the dictionary meaning of a word. Every word's got a dictionary meaning, and then every word has a, a connotation. Some words might mean the same thing, Two words might mean the exact same thing in the dictionary, but one has a negative connotation, one has a positive connotation. An example of that would be the word to pursue. I pursue, I go after something. But pursue is kind of like negative. It's like a predator pursuing its prey. Then you've got ensue in the, in the English language. It means the same thing, go after something. But ensue has more of a positive connotation, like pursuing for profit, pursuing for benefit, not only for the one ensuing, but the one being ensued. So there's a little bit of a difference there. And I want to give you some examples of this in the English language. Now they say that it's just like it's impossible for you, for you to write your signature the exact same way twice in your life, it's impossible for someone to draw a perfect circle with freehand. That's what they say. And you can tell that that is true. I have proved that by my inability to draw a circle. But what these are supposed to be are diagrams of circles actually overlapping one another. And my point here, this is like a little bit of, this is supposed to be a small overlap, this is supposed to be a larger overlap, and this is supposed to be a very big overlap, and then we've got multiple overlaps. And I wanted to just take an, a, a, a minute to show you what I'm talking about in terms of words having the same denotation and connotation. Let's take two words in our southern English. Let's take Coke and then soft drink. Okay, these words have elements that are different. A Coke is a type of soft drink. It's a brand, right? So it's got its own unique meaning here in the white. A soft drink is a, some people call it a pop in the Midwest, it's a carbonated sweet drink, right? It's got its own unique meaning. But did you know these words actually have an overlap of meaning? We here in the South will often use the word Coke not as a reference to Coca-Cola, but as a general reference to soft drinks in general. I'm going to go drink a Coke. Well, I may be drinking a Sprite or a Sundrop, but Coke in that context has a general meaning, right? So you see the words overlap. Now, it's not a big overlap because most of the time a soft drink is a general term and the Coke is a specific term. But there is a small overlap. That's why the context is important. Then, let's uh, take two words that have a bigger overlap. We have road and street. Two different words that have a very similar meaning. And most of the time when we refer to a road, a road is a street. However, there is a little bit different meaning. A road doesn't only have to be pavement. A road could be dirt. Would we ever refer to a gravel road as a, as a street? Not really. So there is a bigger overlap, but yet there can be a shade of difference depending on the context. A side point I'm making here is the Scriptures taken out of context can really mislead you. Apart from the context, people go wrong, and that's why there's so much false doctrine. Some words have overlap with additional words. Look, the word mad, the word angry... In the word insane. Okay, this word mad has its own unique meaning, but it shares, it, give, it can give a connotation of angry, 
or it can give a connotation of insane. Okay? Anger and insanity are different. Sometimes they're linked, but it depends on the context. So words have similarity of denotation and similarity of connotation, some greater, some lesser than others. My point here today is to get back to these love, this, type, this love that the New Testament talks about. Philadelphia love or agape love. My argument would be the overlap in these words is very big so that only a small sliver is unique. And that's where I would say the sliver of difference might be more between emphasis on attitude and emphasis on action. But the words are virtually interchangeable. Turn with me to John chapter 20. There's a little story at the end of Jesus' earthly life where people try to say, look, you know, there's these Greek nuggets. We can't understand what's being said here. But this is the proof that these words mean the same thing. And that when the Scriptures are commissioning us to brotherly love, they're not commissioning to us to a casual, friendly, on-the-surface love. They are commissioning us to an unconditional agape love like what God had for man. John chapter... Not, what did, I, did I say John chapter 20? 20. It's 21. It's not chapter 20. I don't know what I'm talking about. It's chapter 21. Verses 15 through 17. So when they had dined, Jesus said unto Simon Peter... Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? You look at the Greek, Jesus said, do you agape me more than these? He or Peter saith unto him, yes, Lord, you know that I love Philadelphia, thee. Jesus said, do you agape me? Peter said, yes, I feel at Philadelphia, you. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Verse 16, He saith unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest or agape thou me? Peter, or he saith unto him, Yes, Lord, you know that I Philadelphia you. I love you. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Now look at verse 17. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, lovest Philadelphia thou me? Peter was grieved because he had said unto him the third time, Philadelphia, thou me. Had, had Jesus asked Peter three times, do you Philadelphia me? No, he asked him once. Twice he asked him, do you agape me? But Peter's upset because he's been asked the same question three times. If those words are different, then what is Peter upset about? Because the third question would be different. So Peter's upset because he's been asked the third question, the same question three times. Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. Thou knowest that I love Philadelphia thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. So the words, are, see how they're used interchangeably here? Jesus was asking Peter, Do you love me with agape love? And Peter was saying, Of course I love you with Philadelphia love. And then Jesus asked the third time, do you love me with Philadelphia love? And Peter's frustrated. Why are you asking me the same question three times? So when the Bible says, let brotherly love continue, it's not talking about a casual man-to-man love. It's talking about, or a casual friendly love. It's talking about an unconditional, self-denying, 
love, agape love, like what God had for the world when He sent Jesus Christ to die. Let's consider a few passages of Scripture this morning. And I want you to try to guess what type of love is being talked about here. Let's look first at some passages that refer to the love of God. Okay, y'all help me out here this morning. Let's look up some Scripture. Luke 11.42, someone. Then I want John 16.27, John 5.42, Titus 3.4, Romans 5.8, in Revelation 3.19, all of these refer to the love of God. And you've been told that agape is God's love, unconditional. Philadelphia is man's love, casual and friendly. And I want you to read these passages, and as we read them, I want you to guess which word is being used, and it's going to further prove my point. That the word, what we're being commissioned to, what Philadelphia was commended for is, far, is something far stronger than I, I think the church today even comprehends. Luke 11.42 Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You've rejected the love of God. You don't have the love of God in you. What type of love you think is being talked about here based on definitions you've heard in the past? Okay, yes, this is agape. Agape is the word used here. These Pharisees did not have the love of God. Agape, unconditional love. John 16, 27. The Father loves you because you have loved Me. The love of God for those that love Jesus. What type of love is that? It's Philadelphia. Okay, see how love of God was agape in the first passage. It's Philadelphia here. And what Jesus is commending His followers for in John 16 is the same thing that He was rebuking the Pharisees for in Luke 11. John 5.42 Okay, what type of love you think that is? Just guess. Okay, it's agape. All right. Titus three four. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man here. The love of God our Savior toward man. What type of love? What words being used in that passage? What do you think? Agape? No, it's Philadelphia. Okay, you guys have. I mean, you guys are going to know because I've given away that I've already given you the, the, the punchline and I'm alternating back and forth. But if you were to sit down with a bunch of scriptures based on the Greek nugget that everyone thinks is there today and fill in the blank about which one you think it is, you'd be surprised how, 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 how much you get it wrong. But here we have the love of God be, through Jesus being spoken of as agape love or Philadelphia love. Romans 5 8. This is, an old, this is a passage of Scripture you ought to have memorized. It's right there on the Romans road. What's that say? But God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's agape. So the exact same thing talked about in Titus 3.4 as Philadelphia is talked about in Romans 5.8 as agape. Revelation 3.19 
As many as I love, guess what that is? Philadelphia, I rebuke and chasten. There is no love for your brother in Christ that is not willing to rebuke and chasten when they're in sin, and that's Philadelphia. Not some kind of ethereal agape love that only God can do because only God can judge. Yeah, only God can judge, but He's commissioned us to pass the sentence along. And that's what love does. So you see how you've got this interchanging use of agape love and, and Philadelphia love, and it, the, the same subjects are defined in terms of these different words. So they obviously mean the same thing, correct? Okay, let's, what about love of man or love for one another? We've talked about love for God and we see both words being used. Let's look at love for one another. 1 John 2, 4 and 5. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. John 3, 18. And again, I'll read again 1 Peter 1.22. So somebody look up 1 John 2, 4, and 5. He that says, I know Him and keeps not His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. By keeping God's Word, the love of God is perfected in us. The love of God, in other words, the love of God we show toward one another in the context there is perfected in us. That's talking about agape love. The love of God as manifest in us toward our brothers. Agape. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. Okay, this is talking about the love of man for God. We talked about the love of God for man. Now we're talking about the love of man, either one for another or for God. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. In other words, let him be rejected. Maranatha, even so come Jesus. That's Philadelphia. In other words, the agape love of God is perfected in you when you keep His commandments. And if you have not Philadelphia love for Christ, let you be, let, let whoever has not Philadelphia love, let him be uh, anathema. 1 John 3.18 Okay, that was John chapter 3. That was good. That's a good... I said 1 John. That's alright. We need to hear... That's a good verse to hear this morning. Amen. I'll read real quick just to save time. 1 John 3.18 um, says, My little children, let us, lo let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. 
What love is being talked about there, do you think? It's agape. Love in deed and in truth, not just in word. Um, and then we've got 1 Peter 1.22. I'll go back to what we read earlier. I've gotten to where I can turn through this thing pretty quick. The pages are worn. Seeing as you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. That's Philadelphia love. So just like in terms of God's love for man, so in terms of either man's love for God or man's love one for another, we see the Scriptures exhorting us both unto agape love and to Philadelphia love. And we see these exhortations being mirrored in such a way that the only conclusion, the only reasonable conclusion you can come to is that these words mean virtually the same thing. And if there is a shade of difference, it's an emphasis. One, I would say, emphasizes more the heart attitude. And I would say that's more the agape. And I would say Philadelphia emphasizes more the outflow of the heart attitude or the action that comes with it. But guys, we're exhorted not just to an attitude in the Scripture, one for another. We're exhorted to attitude that produces action. That's why I love that English word charity in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not just love. It's not just something here. It's love that produces action. Charity. Charity, the attitude of charity determines how we deal with things and deal with people. Vaunteth not itself, it suffereth long, it thinks no evil. These things. That's a great word and I don't like it when the modern Bibles just write that off as love. People in modern day America love ice cream. Men think they love men and want to get married. But that's not what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. It's talking about love, a heart attitude that produces inevitable results or actions. So, my point here, we are to love one another with brotherly love, with Philadelphia slash agape love. And these words are virtually interchangeable. It's not some hidden Greek nugget that you need to study the Greek to find out. Philadelphia, the church of brotherly love, had a love for God and His Word, a love for one another in Christ. It was a love that's so selfless so steadfast, so unconditional that it would even rebuke and chasten. And it is no respecter of persons in terms of truth. God is no respecter of persons. If God is no respecter of persons and He's a God of love, then it follows that the love of God shows no respect of persons. I love how you know uh, people in the church nowadays, some of these deacons who give a lot of money to the church and kind of control the church, they can do whatever they want and sow discord in the church and the pastor won't say anything about it. But God forbid one of the church members who might be tattooed up and maybe just came to Christ a few weeks ago and has a love for the Lord, God forbid he'd step outside the church and smoke a cigarette. Oh my goodness, you got to leave. But yet the deacon's funneling money, the deacon's sowing discord. That's respecter of persons. And that's wicked. You know, it amazes me that certain testimonies of life before Christ make men heroes in the church. But other testimonies of life before Christ make them anathema. 
You know, we see a young man or, or an older man that had a rough life and fell into lots of different sins before his salvation and then God saves him and he's got a desire to preach. He's got a desire to share the gospel on the streets. And it depends on what his testimony was before he'll be accepted. For instance, if a man is a murderer and he committed murder and he served his time and then he comes to Christ and then he wants to go out on the streets and share the gospel and preach, he's a hero. Oh man, you've got to hear his testimony. Praise God, this is a hero. He was once a murderer. But what if you had a man that in his life before Christ he was married and got a divorce? And then he comes to Christ. And there's no way to reconcile that marriage because his wife's gone off and married someone else, but he has a desire to go out on the streets and be a witness and to start sharing his faith. I know people that would look at him and say, you have no right to go out there and share your faith. You're a divorced man. The murderer is a hero, but the divorced man's anathema. That makes no sense to me. That's absolute hypocrisy. Where in the Bible does it say that a divorced man can't go share his faith on the streets? The Bible has certain standards about men in leadership in the church, but leadership in the church and obeying Jesus Christ and His great commission on the streets, my friends, are two different things. Don't make the Scripture say something it doesn't say. Don't make it say something it doesn't say. When the Bible says that, that God suffers a, not a woman to lead or to teach in the church, don't interpret that to mean that a woman can't share Jesus Christ in the world with a man. There are, there are people that teach that nonsense. That if you're a woman, you have no business ever witnessing to a man. Well, you're adding something to the Scriptures that's not there, and you ought to be ashamed of yourself, Christian, if that's what you're doing. If that's what you're doing. But it's amazing how some people are heroes, but others are anathema. And there's all this biting and devouring one another in the church when we ought to be loving one another. Remember the, the twofold commandment? And I'm not saying we turn an eye to sin, but someone that has fallen into something in their life apart from Christ is the testimony of God's forgiveness. Those that claim the name of Christ and are living in sin and ignoring it, that's something very different. We want to embrace those, but yet we want to anathemize the ones that were radically changed by Christ. It's just so backward. It makes no sense to me. The, the twofold commandment that we see Jesus give in the book of John, and then we see it brought together in 1 John. I talked about it last week. This is the work of God, John 6, that you believe on Him whom God hath sent. And then a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. And then it brings it all together there in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, it says this, And this is His commandment, that we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He gave His commandment. So when the Bible says, if you love Me, keep My commandments, then it obviously is referring to <coughs> belief upon Christ, not in our works and our church attendance as our means of salvation, and love for one another. That is, saint for saint, brethren for brethren. Love for one another. The Laodicean church, unlike Philadelphia on the other hand, devours the brethren, embraces the iniquity of the lost, appeases the world at the expense of its Christian brethren. And that's the age we're living in today. We can be a light not only to the lost world, but to dead churchianity by our love for one another. When we have a disagreement 
within the church, and maybe it gets ugly, we don't blow a gasket. Oh, I'm just going to go worship somewhere else. Half of the separation and half of the splits in church today aren't over doctrinal issues. They're over personal preferences and people got their panties in a wad. There is a call in the Scriptures for biblical separation. When the truth has been compromised, we must separate. But separating from our brethren over personal preferences or we got our feelings hurt, that is wicked. And if you church hop because the pastor says a little thing that gets on your toe, steps on your toes and he was right, then you don't have love for the brethren. If you know your brother's in sin and you would just rather ignore it and go somewhere else so you don't have to talk about it, that's not right. That's not love of the brethren. That's Laodicea, not Philadelphia. If you would give your, your lost co-worker or your lost family member that blasphemes God the benefit of the doubt over your brother and sister in Christ, then you have a problem. And I see so much of that today. I see it on Facebook where somebody gives a testimony. Maybe they're out preaching or maybe something happens or maybe a brother's arrested and he's in prison. And Maybe it's not exactly the way we would have handled it. What do the Christian brethren do? They go on Facebook. They don't encourage him. They don't say, we're going to pray for you. They don't urge him to stand fast. They start nitpicking. Well, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. You should always listen to the police. The police are always right. You've got to respect the police. Blah, 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 blah. Given wicked, filthy, abominable police officers, and they do exist in this country. Filthy, wicked, corrupt, abominable police officers do exist in this country. Giving them the benefit of the doubt over your Christian brother who's separated from his family and sitting in a jail cell. That is disgusting. And to use Facebook as a means to do it, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. That's the type of stuff, in my opinion, that disqualifies you from going out on the street and preaching the gospel if you're devouring your brethren when you're at home sitting in front of the computer on Facebook. You need to get your, you need to get your heart in order before you go out there and start preaching. That's not love for the brethren. We should never give the lost man. I see this demon spirit. I travel around America preaching in many places and Ricky and I, we see this demon spirit that comes up against us in people and some people that claim to be Christ where they want to try to divide or pit one of us against another. They'll come up and say to me, well, you know, I really like you. I like your attitude and you know, you make me want to listen to you but your friend over here, he's just too blunt. Well, that's a demon spirit, people. Like, I'm going to fall for that. You know, they're trying to tickle my ego while, while, while criticizing my brother. No, I'm with my brother. And even if he doesn't handle himself right, I'm going to stand by him and we're going to talk about it when we get away in private. That's love for the brother. Don't fall prey to that demon spirit that wants to divide the church. And it's, it's followed me all over the world. Stand with your brethren. Stand with your brethren. It's funny because Philadelphia slash agape self-sacrificing love, you know, that really is what describes the charity and brotherly love that dissipated the bitter personal animosities of theological and political dispute of the Sardis period. And it was that Philadelphia love, that unity in Christ that made possible the evangelistic and missionary labor of the 18th and 19th centuries. You see, there was all this political and theological dispute in Sardis, Sardis was dead. Well, what happened with the onset of the age of Philadelphia? Aside from the apostolic church 
and the early church of the first and maybe part of the second century, there's never been a time in the history of the church when the church, I'm not talking about Catholicism, I'm not talking about things that claim to be a church but aren't preaching the gospel, but when the church, the remnant, across denominational boundaries, there's never been a time when there was such unity. Not unity at at the expense of the truth that we're being exhorted to today, but unity in the truth. We see that in the missionary age of the Philadelphia period where these churches came together in the unity of the gospel and were used by God. They put aside the disputes and the sowing of the discord and there was unity. And then God God brought awakening to the world. God brought uh, uh, revival to the world. You go back and you read, you think of some of the denominations today that are so dead and so far from God. And then you go back and read in the 18th and 19th century some of the boldest missionaries and evangelists that were out there were Episcopalians. Then you had men like John Wesley founded the Methodist Church. You had Lutheran missionaries in Germany. Moravian brethren. You had Congregationalist brethren. You had Baptist brethren laboring together. Not one big ecumenical mess like we have today laboring together for the cause of the Gospel. And a lot of times, people in those denominations that were off base on some issues biblically, when that unity took place, men began to be more perfectly instructed in the truth. And you'll see people come closer to Christ and put aside areas of denominational doctrine that fell short of the truth. It's an amazing testimony of what biblical brotherly love does for the church. But we're absent of that today. We have substituted appeasement to the world for unfeigned love of the brethren. Do you understand why it's so important for me to talk about brotherly love this morning? You know, you you may say, well, you're, you're getting off on a tangent. You're getting away from the text. You're chasing a rabbit trail. No, I'm not. Philadelphia, what is brotherly love? Do we have it one for another? You may have to study those Old Testament passages another week and try to, try to get some truth out of it. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. The description of Jesus Christ here is less similar to John's vision of Revelation 1 than any other of the presentations to the seven churches. With every salutation in these chapters, an element of John's vision from chapter 1 is highlighted for the specific church. To Ephesus, Pergamos, Thyatira, and Sardis, the highlighted elements have to do with Christ's appearance. What He looked like when John saw Him in chapter 1. But to Smyrna and Philadelphia, the churches that do not receive rebuke but are commended by Christ, the element of Revelation 1 that is highlighted is not Christ's appearance, but the words that He spoke to John. Laodicea, it's like 
Jesus takes the entire vision and sums it up as a whole and throws it out there to Laodicea. But it's unique that what we see here, this allusion to the words of Christ restated here to Philadelphia is unique in that this description alludes not only to Revelation 1, but it alludes to an Old Testament person who we'll see was a type of Jesus Christ. It says here that... Who is it that's talking to Philadelphia? He that's holy and true and he that has the key of David. Look over in Revelation chapter 1. Let's go back to that vision. Okay, The vision describes Christ in the glory of His judicial position. And those churches that needed to repent were reminded of what Christ looked like. But those that were commended were reminded of what Christ said. John fell down before this glorified Jesus at His feet, verse 17, And then Jesus laid His right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am He that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. What did Jesus write to the church at Smyrna that was suffering? Some were dying for Christ. He said, These things saith He that is the first and the last, that was dead and is alive forevermore. So it's a reference to Christ's words here. And then it goes on to say, after he says, Behold, I am alive forevermore, verse 18, Amen, and have the keys of hell and death. This part of the statement that Jesus makes is what's being referred to in the letter to Philadelphia. Amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Another way to say that is very simple. These things saith he that is holy and true, and he that has the key of David. It's the same thing. Let's consider for a minute. Jesus said, I am He that is holy and true. That means, holy means to be set apart and confirmed. It's a testimony to Christ's sovereignty and the certainty of the fulfillment of His promises. Holy and true is a synonym for amen. Holy means set apart and established. True would mean... Absolute. Absolutely. Amen really means that same thing. Do we ever think about what that word amen means? In Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I'm the amen. In Webster's 1828 Dictionary of the English Language, as a verb, amen signifies to confirm, to establish, to verify, to trust, or to give confidence. As a noun, it means truth, firmness, trust, or confidence. In English, we generally use amen at the end of declarations and prayers in the sense of be it firm, be it so, be it true, be it established. That's what amen means. True, confirmed, established. Holy in the sense of being established. So you see how Philadelphia is being reminded of something that Christ said in Revelation chapter 1. How He appeared... Were the way he appeared connotes judgment to those churches that needed to repent. But what he said brought comfort not only to John who fell at his feet in fear, but brings comfort to those churches that Jesus does not rebuke. Do you see how words can be at once judgment to those who are 
Words or, an, or appearance or in a context can be at once judgment to those that are not walking with the Lord, but yet comfort to those who are. The coming of Christ to judge the world. The judgment of the nations should spark fear in the hearts of those that reject Christ, but yet it's comfort for us. The Amen. The fact that Christ is the Amen, the set apart, the holy, the true, ought to comfort us in our faith. Because Christ is truth, He is established. Or He is holy. Because He is holy or established, He is truth. He is the Amen. He is the Amen. In fact, we'll, go, we'll learn when we go to the message to the church at Laodicea, unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness. That sums up Christ and His entire appearance there in Revelation chapter 1. Christ is the Amen. That means He keeps His promises. He is established. He is true. Even the promises that were made to Israel, He keeps. Don't tell me that God replaces the promises to Israel and spiritualizes them and allegorizes them and gives them to the church and then He's rejected Israel. That's just not, that's not holy. It's not true. And it's not established as Christ is who does not change. The church of the day wavers. Christians today waver, carried with every wind or wave of doctrine like a pendulum swinging back and forth in terms of indecisiveness and an inability to hold fast. But Christ is not that way. He's like an anchor in the storm. The anchor for our soul. You guys... Um, Let's just look for a minute a couple passages of Scripture. 2 Corinthians. I want to at least get to where I can... Well, I'm not going to get to that. 2 Corinthians chapter um, 1, 18-20. Listen to this. But as God is true, our word to you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus, who was Silas, and Timotheus or Timothy was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen unto the glory by God of us. In Jesus Christ the promises, even those made to Israel, are amen. Be it true, be it established. God's promises never fail. What He says He means, and what He prophesies will come true. He's the amen. What about Jesus Christ in Philippians 2? This Amen. This One who is holy and true. Wherefore God hath highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ, my friends, is set apart. He is holy. He's not one of many religious leaders. He's not one of many religious teachers. He's not one of many gods to put on a shelf to superstitiously pay homage to. He is holy. That means set apart. And He is truth. Not a way to find truth, but the truth. In Acts chapter 4, when the believers have been persecuted and threatened, they come together and pray. In that famous chapter, we get a definition of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Doesn't mean to be acting drunk and screaming and hollering, laughing and barking like dogs. To be filled with the Spirit is to speak the Word of God in boldness. Go study what that means, Acts 4. But as they pray out 
to God. They cry out to God and they make reference twice to Thy holy child Jesus. Listen, Lord, behold their threatenings, how they're threatening us, how, they've, how they're uh, coming against Your holy child, Jesus. You see, Jesus is the Son of God. He's holy and set apart. Set apart by God in Psalms 2. As the Messiah, as the Anointed, He will reign. Not the Holy Servant Jesus, as the ESV in the modern Bibles say here in Acts chapter 4, but the Holy Child Jesus, the Holy One, the One set apart. You all know John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. In Le- to the message to the church at Laodicea, Revelation 3, 14, Jesus says, These things saith the Amen. Well, to Philadelphia, Christ is the Amen was assurance. It was comfort. But to Laodicea, as we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus Christ is the Amen was judgment and rebuke. Is Christ as the Amen, the Holy One, the True One? Is that comfort and assurance for you today, Christian? Or is it rebuke? Is it conviction because you're not living for Him as you should? These claims that Jesus made about being the Amen, about being holy, about being true, about being the truth, these claims were never made by Muhammad or Buddha or the Hindu gurus. They all spoke about seeking truth, finding truth. Follow me and I will show you the path to truth. Or I'll show you how to find peace. That's not Jesus. I saw this stupid, stupid, stupid. I know you guys don't like that word, but I know no other way to describe it. Billboard in southern India. It was in English and it was put out by a Muslim group and it had a picture of the Quran on it and it had a quote supposedly by Muhammad and I I don't believe Muhammad actually said this, but it said, follow me and God will love you. In other words, the very idea, follow a man who is a child molester, number one, and a bloodthirsty barbarian, number two, we better follow a man if we want God to love us. Now just think about how ridiculous that sounds. Well, Muhammad didn't say that, number one. So I picked up my cell phone, I called the number on there, and I rebuked them. And then they kept calling me back, wanting to know where I was, who I was, and I just let it go. But these religious teachers didn't claim to be what Jesus claimed to be. He made some profound claims, and then he proved it by raising from the dead. He is the truth. I am the truth, saith the Lord. Why? Because He is sovereign God. He is holy and separate, set apart from creation. This twofold description of Christ here to the church at Philadelphia, He that is holy and true. This twofold description of Christ highlights a great biblical and eternal truth for us. Right doctrine, listen, right doctrine and right living go together. There can be no holiness, no biblical love without biblical truth. And no truth No biblical truth in its fullness without holiness and Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Do you understand that? You can have all the right doctrine in the world, my friends. You can have it right down the line in terms of God's 
uh, attributes. You can have it right down the line in terms of Bible versions or end times. You can have it right down the line. But if you have not charity one for another, if you have not love for your brethren, then you are a tinkling symbol. And you are not modeled after Jesus Christ who is holy and true. You can have unfeigned love for the brethren. You can do everything in your power to help your Christian brother, to love everyone, to be self-sacrificing, and your doctrine can be skewed. And you could quickly find yourself on a path to destruction. Right doctrine and right living go together. One without the other is out of balance. Jesus Christ models that for us in His character and thereby exhorts us to such. Also, in view of John 14.6, in this twofold description, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. Consider what Jesus later on, in John 14, He's talking to His disciples, and then in John 17 is His great high priestly prayer, where He prays to God, or in a sense, He prays to Himself, because He is God, He was God in the flesh. Jesus in His humanity prays to God on behalf of, of His disciples in His role as a high priest, just like He is for us today. The Bible says He lives ever in Hebrews to make intercession for us. But listen to what Jesus says or prays on behalf of His followers then and now. And what He declared as the source of truth in terms of their sanctification. He had told them, I am the truth in John 14. And then in John 17, He prays for their behalf and says, Lord God, sanctify them by Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. So Jesus told them, I am the truth, the living Word. And then in His prayer on their behalf, He affirms that Thy Word, the written Word, is Thy truth. There is no love or living for Christ apart from love and living for the Bible. I've heard so many people claim they love Jesus, but the Bible's just a book written by men. My friends, you don't know Jesus if you think the Bible's just a book written by men and it has no authority in your life. There is no love or living for Christ. There is no sanctification or walk with God apart from the written Word. Because you see, and I was accused of heresy for saying this, you see, the living Word, the written Word, it's all the same. In Jesus Christ, the Word written in heaven, established of old. We think, well, men wrote this. No, it was written in heaven from eternity past. And God used men as instruments just like I use a pen in the hand. The pen writes it, but I'm the instrument, I'm the author. In Jesus Christ, the Word became flesh. So don't tell me you love God. Don't tell me you love God and hate your brother. And don't tell me you love God and you love Jesus and hate the Bible. And don't tell me you love God and you love Jesus and you hate the bride of Christ. It doesn't work that way. That's the problem with the church today in America. It loves Jesus or claims to, but it despises the bride of Christ, the church. It despises the Word of God, the Bible. And it despises the children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. Profound hypocrisy. And it's that hypocrisy that Jesus Christ rebukes at Laodicea. Friends, we ain't in Philadelphia anymore. We're just not. Right doctrine and right living go together. Because Jesus Christ is holy and true, because the Creator God is holy and true, do you understand that there are things God, the Almighty Creator of the universe, the omniscient, 
the all-powerful, the omnipotent, and the lost world can't understand this. Because He is holy and true, there are things that God cannot do. Yeah. There are things God can't do. The all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipotent God cannot do certain things. Even if He wanted to, He couldn't do it. Well, how do you speak of God like that? Well, the natural man can't understand the things of God for they're spiritually discerned. That's why you can't lost world understand that God cannot do certain things. You say, well, you can't put God in a box. No, I can't put God in a box, but God put Himself in the box of His Word and He does not operate outside those boundaries because He is holy and because He is true. God cannot do certain things. He cannot lie. Titus 1-2, talking about God's salvation. God that cannot lie promised to the world before its foundations. What can God also not do? God cannot change. Jesus Christ cannot lie. Jesus Christ cannot change. God rebuked the children of Israel in the book of Malachi and says, I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Israel are not consumed. And we want to say, people want to say that God's replaced Israel. God told Israel, it's because I change not that you're not consumed. If I change, I'd have wiped you out because of your rebellion. Well, that ought to tell us that if God can't change, He's not going to change His promises to Israel. That replacement theology really does undermine the character of God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow in the book of Hebrews. God can't lie. Jesus can't lie. God can't change. Jesus cannot change. What else can God not do? He cannot forgive sin without punishing it first. We think we can just say we're sorry and God forgives. No, God cannot forgive your sin because He is holy and true without first punishing it. What did God do with the sins of man on the person and work of Jesus Christ? on the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. He punished the sins of man. God could not forgive and take away the sins of man until His Son was punished for those sins. The soul that sinneth it will die. You can either pay for your own sins through an eternal punishment which is hell or you can allow your sins to have been punished on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. That's the only way you'll find forgiveness is if you allow your sins to have been punished in Jesus. Otherwise, you're going to be punished. God won't forgive your sin apart from the punishment that fell on Christ. Don't tell me that Christ and His atonement didn't satisfy the wrath of God, that didn't involve God punishing His Son. Well, then who did Jesus die for? Who was He paying? The devil? Give me a break. The devil's a created being. Jesus didn't pay the devil on the cross. The devil's a created being. He does only what God allows Him to do. No, Christ was punished by God. It pleased God to bruise Him. How do you read Isaiah 53 and claim that God didn't pour His wrath on Jesus on the cross? Blindness. Natural man can't understand the things of God. Because Jesus Christ is holy and true, friends, He can't lie, He can't change, and He cannot forgive sin without first punishing it. But praise God, He did punish it. He punished it on Christ the perfect sacrifice who was raised from the dead, God accepting His sacrifice, and thereby upon our repentance and faith, repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God can declare us righteous based upon the righteousness of Christ. Because in Christ, every sin, past, present, and future was punished. But if you will reject that, if you will seek to pay off an infinite debt, on your own, that you can't possibly pay back, then Hebrews ask a very pointed question. How can you escape 
if you neglect so great salvation. These, saith, these things saith He that is holy and true. Please understand the relationship between holiness and truth. Between holiness and love. Because that's where so many have gone astray in the church today. Well, there's another aspect of Jesus here. He tells the John in chapter 1, I'm the Amen. I'm the one that holds the keys of hell and death. He says here to the church, I'm holy and true, i.e. I am the Amen. I hold the keys of David. The key of David, the one that he opens and no man can shut, and the one that he shuts and no man can open, that is the keys of hell and death. It's the keys of the kingdom that were entrusted to Peter when he was given the keys to open the door to the Jews in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost and open the door to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 in the home of Cornelius. It's the keys that we are given stewardship when Christ commissions us to go to the ends of the earth. It's the keys to the kingdom of God. It's the keys to God's treasure house, eternal life. We don't own those keys. We don't possess them of our own volition. Christ is the possessor. He's the possessor. He's the possessor of the keys. Now when it says here that Jesus has the key of David, shuts and no man opens, opens and no man shuts, that's an almost a word-for-word -word description that's given of someone in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 22. It's Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I don't have the time to go into that today. I really want to bring that together. But I felt like I needed to discuss not only brotherly love in this message, but the relationship between holiness and truth. Holiness, truth, and the brotherly love that we spoke about at the beginning. But I want you to just, again this week, search through these Scriptures. How is this going to tie together? And I want to give you a key today. I want to give you a hint before we close. When you read the story of how God replaced one man as the treasurer over the treasure house of King Hezekiah with another man. I want you to consider the difference between man-centered ministry and God-centered ministry. I'm going to give you another key this week, another passage of Scripture that was written in this context. You guys read the story of Hezekiah, right? When the king of Assyria came threatening... What was his knee-jerk reaction? What was the first thing he did? Knee-jerk. There's some knee-jerk reactions we have about stuff. What's the first thing Hezekiah did? He thought, oh man, this king's coming. Didn't take time to pray. Didn't take time to thank God. He took talents of silver, talents of gold. He stripped the gold off of the doors of the temple. He took the silver, all the silver out of the king's house out of the house of David, out of the temple, and he gave it to the king to appease him. Where do you think that advice to do that came from? you think Hezekiah was prompted to do that on his own, or do you think that advice came from somebody that was advising him? It came from that wicked man that God said he was going to kick him out, he's going to punt him like a football into a foreign land and put in a guy that trusted him. Hezekiah was surrounded with bad advice. And then we know you had all these people there in, 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 Judah, or in Judah at the time that were trying to convince Hezekiah and the people, let's go down to Egypt and be friends with Egypt. Let's go back to Egypt so we don't have to worry about this. 
We know that advice was probably coming from Shebna as well. Man-centered ministry. Well, this makes sense. This would be effective. It doesn't make sense to just sit there and be still and let God deliver us from a mighty king. He's going to destroy us. Does it? See how it's tying together? Well, then God replaces Shebna with this Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. He gives him the key of David. That means he's the treasurer. He's the one entrusted with the authority to open and close the treasure of God's house. What happened when, when Sennacherib's messengers came back? Did they give him anything else? No. They decided to do it God's way. What is God's way in ministry? Is it trying to figure everything out ourselves? Is it trying to use the latest strategy, the business model, what's effective? Or is it simply trusting Him, being still and knowing that He is God? The church of Laodicea can't be still and know that He is God. The church of Philadelphia did. And God used them to do things that today would be considered impossible. Well, we see what happens when they come back and taunt Hezekiah. And Hezekiah takes that letter and what does he do? He spreads it before the Lord. How, do, we, do we take our needs and our, our, our understandings, do we take our desires to know God's will and spread them before the Lord before we act? Or do we just knee-jerk? Like Hezekiah at the advice of Shebna. Get the gold, get the silver, let's appease him. We think by appeasing the lost today in America that we're going to win the country for Christ. That's foolishness. Then we know what happens. God delivers the people. And they don't even have to raise a finger. Did you know that Sennacherib's armies weren't, weren't right there at the gate of Jerusalem when that happened? They were still off north of there. And the messengers had been sent to threaten King Hezekiah. And before the army even got up out of its camp and came to Jerusalem, the angel of the Lord went through the camp and destroyed 185,000 men. And then Sennacherib ran back to Nineveh with his tail tucked between his legs. And he ended up staying there for another, I don't know, it was probably uh, 30 years later that he was murdered by people in his own house. But I'm going to throw another passage of Scripture in there. How many people know Psalm 46? Our, the Lord is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. Do you know when that psalm was written? Who it was written by? The specific context that occasioned the writing of that psalm? A very precious psalm to many people who have sought God in times of trial? That psalm was written by the sons of Korah in response to God's deliverance from the king of Assyria. What did God say in Psalm 46? Be still and know that I am God. Be still. It's not effective. It's not necessarily smart in the eyes of the world, but be still. And then what did He do? He delivered them. And then the people saw the difference between the man-centered ministry of Shebna and the God-centered ministry of those that would trust in God and wait for Him. And they wrote that psalm. So I want you to just meditate on that psalm this week in the context of all these other Scriptures. And then next week I'm going to talk in a little more detail. And I want to show you how Christ is the type of Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who replaced Shebna, the man-centered ministry. Think about how God took 
the man-centered line of Levi and replaced it with the God-centered priesthood of Melchizedek and Jesus Christ. And then think about actually what Jesus is saying when He tells Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Use them. Is, is Jesus giving Peter the office of a pope? Or is He entrusting him with a mission that He not only entrusted the people at the church at Philadelphia, but He entrusts us with today? So, just take that and meditate upon it. But know that the point I'm making with these Scriptures is what I'm trying to do is help you see the difference between man-centered ministry, God-centered ministry, and the difference between the church at Philadelphia where God wrought great revivals, the great missionary age, and the church of Laodicea today that's, that's uh, rich and glorious and powerful and wealthy on the outside but spiritually poor, blind, wretched, and naked on the inside. One was God-centered ministry, God-centered missions, God-centered church planting, God-centered church growth, the other's man-centered missions, man-centered church planting, man-centered church growth. One was Shebna, man-centered. One is Eliakim, God-centered. One has a knee-jerk reaction. Well, you can't preach on sin. They're not going to listen to you. You're going to offend somebody. Another has a God-centered reaction. Be still and know that I am God. Wait upon the Lord. Be of good courage. He will strengthen thy heart. I will fight for you, God said to Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus when Pharaoh and his armies came. Are we willing to just keep doing what we know is right because the Word says it right and trust God for the results? Or are we going to try to do it man's way and do it in a way that's most effective? That's the difference between Philadelphia and Laodicea. Alright, I'll end there today. I'll give you, I hope I gave you a little taste. Just meditate on those Scriptures this week and bring Psalm 46 into it and we'll continue next week. As I've said before, there's much in here that is in depth. We need to talk about brotherly love. We need, to, we, need to, we need to look at it. We need to see that agape love is brotherly love, is Philadelphia love. We need to see that holiness, right doctrine, and right living go together. And these things we are taught by Jesus Himself in this message. And trust me, there's a whole lot more. You know, you want to talk about, think about this. We want opportunities to serve God, right? How many of you are looking for opportunities to serve God? You're looking for an open door from God. Many of you, right? What, where does the opportunity come from? Or how do we get those opportunities? Well, look at what Jesus says to the church. I have set before thee an open door because you are of little strength. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. So the opportunities were preconditioned by a church that had little strength. In other words, they didn't try to labor in their own strength. They rested in God. They kept God's Word, and they didn't deny His name. So if you want the opportunity to serve God, be like Church of Philadelphia. Be, of little, be content to be of little strength. Jesus told His disciples, without Me, you can do nothing. But the church today wants to labor in its own strength. That wasn't a rebuke. That was a commendation because the church recognized it had little strength. We have nothing without Christ. Fall in Him, keep His Word, and don't deny His name. Then you'll have an open door to do ministry. Alright, let's pray over the food. I, I, I'm sorry I'm running late. I'm just trying to get a certain distance before I go off on the road to preach in October and I don't want to leave you guys in the middle of something. So thanks for your patience. 
Thanks, kids, for behaving. I'm real impressed you guys would listen and be quiet. That's really a good testimony. And uh, praise the Lord for that. Lord, thank you for this food. Thank you for this wonderful, beautiful Sunday morning where we could gather with freedom and, and worship you and, and dive into your word. I pray the food would nourish us. Pray for those that are not amongst us, Lord, that you will comfort them and heal them of their infirmities today. Pray for those believers around the world that are suffering for you, that you would strengthen them and that their suffering and persecution would be a testimony for those that are poor and in need, that you'll provide for them and let them know that their brethren in Christ here, uh, here in America love them and, and, and long to be with them in eternity. Uh, Lord, help us to be uh, like our Savior, Lord, one who is true, one who's established, one who does not waver, Lord, one that doesn't change, Lord, one that's holy. Help us to have, to live holy and live truth, truthfully, right doctrine and right living, Lord. Help us to be God-centered, not man-centered like Shebna there, the treasurer of the house of the Lord. Help us to wait upon you as Hezekiah did, to spread our needs before you as he spread that letter from King Sennacherib before you. Thank you for what you teach us in your word, even from years and years and years ago, Lord, to give us not only comfort and hope, but admonition. Thank you, Lord. Bless our fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.